you turn with me to the passage on which today's gospel lesson is based. It's printed in page 8 in your bulletins, and we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, and I'll be reading from verses 6 to 24. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And this is God's word. Now, if you're new to Metro, the past month we've been looking at the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and we learned that chapter 1, God creates the heaven and the earth, and then he creates man. And he empowers man. He empowers man to rule the earth, to subdue the earth. Man is a vice king of which God is the king to, uh, that he would worship. And in chapter 2, God tells this man, do not eat from this tree or you will die. That's what he says. But despite God's command, Eve abandons the trust of God, the security of God, the love of God. And Adam and Eve both take from the tree and they eat of the tree. What a sin. It's pretty plain here. Sin is abandoning God. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is rebelling against the trust of God. 
and the security of God and the wisdom of God and the love of God. Why is there evil in the world? Why is there evil in our city? Why is there injustice that we experience time and time and time again? Is it because of a lack of education? Is it because of bad politics, bad policies? Is it because we have a lack of proper upbringing in our generation today? The Bible says it's because of sin. Original sin, deep-rooted, personal sin in our lives, in us. There are three things we're going to learn today about sin. What it is, its consequences, and uh, how it ends. Right? What it is, consequences, how it ends. First, we're going to look at what it is, <clears throat> because we're taught so many defi- definitions about what it is. What is sin? You know, Pastor Justin, last week, he masterfully this last week, in verse 6, we have the serpent, and the serpent, he represents the totality of, of all of evil. He represents the totality of evil. He comes to Eve, and he says, did God really say that you must not eat of this tree? Because you're going to be like God. That's what he says. In other words, you don't need God. You can make your own decisions. You can be your own master. You don't need God. It was a lie. That's what Pastor Justin taught us last week. So in verse 6, when Eve looks at the fruit, she starts to reason with herself, and she says, oh, this food is good for food. It's pleasing to the eye. How can this be bad? And so she distrusts God, and she buys into the lie. What's the lie? God is not for me. God is not out for my good. Why would God withhold this good thing, this pleasing thing from me. In other words, I know what's good for me. I don't care what you think. I get that you're giving me good advice. I don't care what God says. I get that he is wise. But I know what's good for me. What is sin? Sin is putting yourself in God's place. Sin is a gross overstatement of yourself, of your worth apart from God. That's what sin is. And it affects everything you desire, everything you think about, everything you decide, everything you do. Because in the end, you want to take God's place. We want, we're, when we're, from the moment we're born, we want to take God's place. Despite God's faithfulness, despite over and over again, if, take, cross aside Every day you see examples of God's goodness and his faithfulness and his truthfulness. And yet, we want to do what we want. And it's that distrust that starts to distort what you see, what you hear, what you do. You see that? And um, verse 6, Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit of the tree. Verse 7, they realize, what, what happens? They realize they're naked. There is shame for the first time in their lives. There's shame. And so they sew these fig leaves together to make a covering for themselves. And ever since this moment, we've been sewing fig leaves in our lives to cover over our sin, to make coverings for ourselves, uh, covering over our shame. Verse 8 and 9, God calls out, where are you? Verse 10, Adam says, I heard you, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. That beautiful sound of God's voice His word, the word of God, that daily walk, intimacy with God. And Adam rejects that intimacy, and now he starts to hide. 
Because sin exposes our weakness, because it exposes ourselves. We hate to be exposed. We hate being known for who we are. And we, we can't stand it. We don't want to see it in ourselves. Uh, and, and it makes us feel vulnerable and weak in a world that says you have to be strong and you have to be self-protecting. We're always vulnerable. It's a dangerous world. And we're always exposed. That's the reality. Now we want to run from that. We want to run from ourselves. We want to run from the dangers that we see, that we perceive. And, and, and now, now we see our sin. Now we see our flaws. and can't stand it. And so what do you do? Instead of coming to the Lord, instead of seeking the Lord, instead of saying, this is what I've done, this is who I am, what do we do? We, we can't stand it. We want to cover it up. We don't want to see it. We want to convince ourselves out of it, and so we work and we pursue other things because if I can just have these things in my life, then it will cover over this weakness and vulnerability in my life. And so we cover up and we cover over and we hide. Sin is hiding from God. Sin is alienation from God, distance from God. What's the result? Uh, Verse 11, God asks, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from this tree? How does Adam respond? The woman you put here, she made me do it. That's what he says. Adam blames God. Adam blames Eve. That alienation from God, that distance from God. Because he's naked, he's fighting. Because he's naked, he's exposed. Have you ever been called out on something that you just absolutely don't want to see about yourself? You look for a way out. You're just looking for that exit sign. How can I get myself out of this situation? You're going to blame. The first thing we do, right, is we start to blame other people. Sin always leads to blaming other people, alienation from other people because we're alienated from God, distance from other people. We will throw people under the bus. You will throw the closest people in your life under the bus because of your distance from God. Anything that will justify you, anything that will clear you. So Adam basically is saying, send her to die. You put her there. Send her to die. It's not me. It's her. It's you. That's what he's saying. Sin is putting yourself in the place of God, creating distance and alienation from God and from other people. Jean-Paul Sartre, a famous philosopher, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre tells a story. And it wasn't the crux of his story. Um, I might have told the story before, but it's about this keyhole. And Sartre says he's looking through this keyhole, and through this keyhole, he sees this woman. I believe she's, taking a, she's about to take a bath or something like that. So she takes off all her clothes, and she's beautiful, and she's naked, and he's looking through the keyhole, and he can see, she can, he can see all of her, uh, her figure, her imperfections, all the things that make her beautiful, right? And Sartre writes, and as he's describing what he sees through the keyhole, he says there's this terror that dawns on him because he realizes he is naked and behind him is a keyhole. You see? That vulnerability, that sense of being exposed, that shame, how do we cope with that? Sartre is basically saying that what we do is, I mean, why do we talk about people behind their backs? Why do we love to do that? Why are we so addicted to gossip? Why do we just love talking about people we don't even know? I mean, you can read the tabloid magazines. The uh, publishing industry makes billions of dollars of just exposing other people's sin, right? 
But we love to confess other people's sin. We love to talk about it in quiet circles. Why do we just love to do that? It's because we're trying to cope, according to Sartre, dealing with the fact that we are naked and somebody else is looking at us. That's what we're doing, you see? When you point out the nakedness of other people, it makes, you're pointing out other people's flaws because it makes you feel better. It makes you feel better about yourself. Adam is saying, it's your fault. It's her fault. I'm, it makes me more okay. At the root of every broken relationship, at the root of every broken family, at the root of every racial tension, at the root of every lie, at the root of every act of chauvinism, at, at the root of every inner pathology in our lives is what? Sin. It's either sin in general that has caused brokenness in our lives or sin that is deep-rooted in us and we're causing, we're a factory breaking things over and over and over again. So now if you're sitting here and you're listening, well, then... If, if it's starting to click for you, you what you're going to say is, well, then the first thing I need to do is to recognize sin, confess sin. But we don't like to do that. That's the fig leaves. That's the covering up. That's, the, that's Adam speaking with God and saying, the woman you put here. We don't want to confess. We can love to criticize other people. We love to gossip about other people. We love to hurt other people. We're being called to repent, to confess, to face our God, to face the one who has created us, to go to him, to own our sin, to, to beg for cleansing of our sin, to beg to be free of our sin, to be able to free, free from the pollution of our sin. And yet what we do is we live out that selfish and proud and self-absorbed, self-justifying nature of sin that begets sin, that begets sin in our lives until one day, that's all that will be left in our lives. You know, that's what hell is. No one gets sent to hell. You choose hell. It starts inside until it just bursts into and gives birth to hell in your life. That's what happens. You need to battle it. You need to hear. You need to obey God's word. You need to ask questions about this. You need to be, we are so much more skeptical of others and have a three-dimensional view of ourselves when we should be having a three-dimensional view of others and be skeptical of ourselves. We need to seek people about our sin, give people a warrant of, of arrest about our sin. You see that? That's what sin is. Two, what are the consequences? The consequence here, you see it incredibly laid out, is the curse. Verses 14 to 19. Verse 24, both Adam and Eve consequentially equally banished. One is not more banished than the other. They are equally banished. Sin is not so much breaking God's rules. There's a distance in relationship God, a breaking of a relationship with God. You have broken God's heart. Both are equally naked, Adam and Eve. Both Adam and Eve equally experiencing shame. Both are equally cursed. Notice, if you think about it, the serpent... The male, the female, they're all cursed. What does sin do? At the moment, you think it's going to increase your options and potential and freedom and joy, but it strips away your options and potential and freedom and joy. So sin degrades you, devolves you, brings you basically the, the, the serpent, the male, the female, they're all equally cursed. Sin devolves you to the level of the serpent. 
and brings you to par with the serpent. It dehumanizes you, makes you less human. You think it's going to make you more human. If I can just have that one thing, pursue that with everything I've got, it's going to make me more of who I am when it actually makes you less of you here because you're actually apart from God. You're becoming more and more distant from God. It can happen in a moment-by-moment basis. It can happen over a long stretch of time. But that's sin, deep-rooted, working itself out in your life, like a, like a cancer, like a corrosion. You see that? We weren't designed to feel shame. We weren't designed to lie. We weren't designed to hide. We weren't designed to, to feel shame. We weren't designed to, to rebel. So when you do, you're actually going against your design. You're actually becoming less human. Sin says God is holding you back from realizing your true self, your true potential, when in reality, sin is holding you back from your true self and your true potential. You take a fine-tuned German automobile, a German engineer car. They're known for their engines. You open up the hood. Oh, you turn that engine on. It's got that nice vroom sound, right? And it just like hums. It's just a beautiful, beautiful engine, right? And what happens is you look at that engine and you could just hear that engine purr. You rev that engine up. You could feel that power in that engine. It's designed to do that. Now you open up the hood and you pour orange juice instead of motor oil into that engine. What happens? It'll run for a little while, but you're going to start to see the breakdown over time because what's been introduced into that engine is something that's outside of its design and it's going to hold them back. Initially, you might feel some power, some burst. But eventually what's going to happen is d- disintegration, incoherence, the car starts to fall apart. That's what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2. We were designed to be integrated, to be coherent, to act and function one with God and yet one with others. And yet what happened was once the image of God has been broken because of sin. You know, we talk about self-esteem, and that's the cause of our problems. Lack of education, you see, those are all symptoms. See, we focus so much on what it's going to take to build our self-esteem, but in reality, it's because we are made in the image of God, and it has become broken, and we have broken it. Sin, if you're owning it, we have broken. The image of God has been broken by our sin. And as a result, the design, that thing, that integration has, beca- has fallen into disintegration. That coherence is now falling into incoherence. That's what's happening. This is the meaning of the curse in Genesis 3. And it affects everyone. It affects everything. What are the consequences? Verse 8, God is walking in the garden. He's walking with Adam and Eve. That's an Old Testament uh, idiom. It means that when God is walking in the garden, you're seeking intimacy. He's seeking intimacy. But here, everyone's gone. The garden is eerily empty. Because Adam and Eve has committed sin, he is now, they are now hiding, they've rebelled from God. God is out in the open, but Adam and Eve are now closed. God is open and free, and yet Adam and Eve are, are hiding and covered, you see that? And God is desiring relationship. Adam and Eve is saying, I hid from you because I was afraid, he says. Sin results first, we talked about alienation. Human beings are radically relational people, why? Because we were designed by God. We were created in the image of God. We've said this week in and week out. The first two chapters of Genesis, we've said we, God is community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Intimate, perfect community and relationship. Coherent, integrated community. We were built in that image. So we're built to be in relationship with one another. But here, God asks, where are you? I can't find you. Where are you? And, he, and, and Adam says, I was naked. I was afraid. So I hid. Nakedness is an Old Testament idiom 
for shame. That, that's a psychological, emotional, and social discomfort. Shame. When our relationship with God is broken, when it's severed, then, then our relationship with others are broken. Why? Because we're alienated from God. We're built for a relationship. Now we're pouring the weight of this intimacy that we've lost with God, and now we're pouring it in other people. We need it. We crave it. It is our fuel. Jesus says, I'm, I'm the vine. You are connected to me. I am the life source. I am your power and your strength. And if you are apart from the vine, you can do nothing. You are nothing. And so what do we do? We now pour into other people because we, we are just addicts for power. We need strength. We need to live. We are looking for life. And so that's what we're doing, you see. We're pouring the weight of intimacy now on other people. It's other people who are now responsible to give us what God and only God can give. But it'll, and that's why it'll never be what we can have with God. Because God is so faithful and so good and so loving and so trustworthy and so forgiving and so gracious and so wise and so powerful. Deep inside, we know we can't find that in others. So what do we do now? We have to protect ourselves. We sow these fig leaves. We use insufficient means to cover up our nakedness and our shame the inadequacy, the insecurity because of our sin. Friends, our presider this morning talked about plugging into community groups. Why do we push community groups aside from the fact that it's a functional, necessary thing in the life of our church? Primarily because you don't get so intimate by all staring in one direction, right? You have to face each other. You have to talk and engage with each other. This is about worship, worshiping God because we are facing God and we are intimately connecting with God and we are praising and worshiping God. That's, we're doing this as a community, as a body. But here, we, we tell community groups because opening yourself up, it's not natural. It's a supernatural thing to open yourself up. When you really open yourself up, what you're saying is, look, I might get exploited. I might get hurt. I've been hurt before in the church. Many of us here have left the church a long time because you've been hurt in the church in the past. And so it's like the most traumatic thing to now come back into the church, join community group again to face the risk of being hurt again, to be getting exploited again. But what you're saying is, but I don't want to hide anymore. I don't want to build relationships on my terms. I need to be weak in front of you. I need to be vulnerable in front of you. This is the essence of real relationships. This is who we are with God. When we're dependent on him perfectly, do you go to God and say, take me because I'm all fixed up now? I've worked really hard to build myself up to a place where I feel like now I can enter in? Is that how we are? No. Even the high priest in the Old Testament Israel, the high priest wouldn't do that. That high priest would go through ritual after ritual, purification and cleansing, trembling as he enters into the most holy place, offering sacrifices. And it's because of the sacrifice that he can stand, you see. Because of the blood that's being spilled, he can stand. It's on the basis of Christ's merit. It's on the basis of Christ's record, not our own. That's the gospel. That's the beginnings of the gospel. So what we're saying is, I need to do this. I, this is the essence of real relationship. When I'm dependent on him perfectly, I can do this. What kills that? Verses 12 to 13, blame-shifting back-talking, gossip, putting ourselves above other people, defensiveness, self-justifying, 
We do that. How many of you have friends? If you have friends, I'm sure everybody here has friends, right? We all do that in front of our friends. The closer to the friend, we do that more. It's kind of, uh, kind of like a counterintuitive thing because you're, the closer somebody is to you, the better they know you, the more they know of you, right? And yet we become more defensive, more self-justifying. When you feel like the, the, this need to protect yourself because you see that nakedness, you feel the shame, what do you do? For example, when you gossip, what, you, what are you doing? You're uncovering the nakedness of other people. You're disguising yourself as righteous. That's your fig leaf. You're showing yourself to be righteous by revealing other people's shame. You see that? What are the consequences of sin? We said the first thing is alienation. The second thing is what? Suffering. In chapter 1, you had, before sin ever entered the world, you had family, you had work. You even had rest. Family, work, and rest. They all existed in the garden before sin ever even entered the world. We think that work is the result of sin. Work existed Adam was working before sin ever came into the world. But when you see the curse, look at the curse. Verse 16, there will now be pains in childbearing. That's family brokenness. Your parents, you have children, your children will be a pain from the moment they are born. For the moment they are conceived, there is pain. My wife and I, you know, we've experienced multiple miscarriages. And one of the things that I've learned is that even when you don't have active, breathing, living children, there is pain, lots of pain, from the moment of conception. That's family brokenness. Verses 17 and 19, the ground is cursed. That means our work is broken. By the sweat of your brow, you will now work. You're going to eat of the plants of the field. Before it was open, given to you, you receive. It's out of grace. Now you've got to work for it. You've got to toil. You're going to labor you're going to blood. There's going to be blood. There's going to be sweat. There are going to be tears. There's going to be failure no matter how hard you work. You see, that's why we are slaves to our work. The ground is cursed. The ground is cursed. That also means there are disasters. There's disease. There's environmental brokenness. Through painful toil, there'll be, there'll be thorns and thistles, he says. He says, you're going to get the thorns. You're going to work hard. You're going to get thorns. It means no matter how hard you work, there's going to be failure. There's going to be loss. There's going to be fruitlessness. There's going to be restlessness. The very thing you're working for, you're, sometimes you're going to get the opposite of that. And in verses 23 to 24, God places these, this cherubim, these angels, in front with a sword to guard the entrance of the Garden of Eden. These angels, they represent the royal presence of God. That's where the throne of God rests because the relationship with God has been broken. But this angel now, instead of ushering you into the presence of God, there is a sword. That means now you are out of the presence of God. Why are we constantly working for approval? Why are we constantly trying to get in? Whatever in is for you, if I could just get this job, if I could just make this money, if I could just earn these titles, if I could get this kind of accomplishment or success, then I'll just never, you know, Rocky, uh, you know, we're Philadelphians here. You've got to love Rocky. Rocky said, Rocky, he doesn't even want to beat Apollo Creed in the first, the, the only good Rocky movie. I mean, I love all of them, but the only good one is Rocky 1, right? R- Rocky, he doesn't want to beat Apollo Creed. He just wants to go all the way. He just wants to go to distance, and he's scared. He says, why is he scared? Because he's going to get beaten up? No, because he, he's been beaten up in the past. Because he's going to be poor? No, he's already poor, you see? Because he's going to be a loser? No, he knows he's a loser, he says. He says, because I know that if I can go 15 rounds, I'll not just be another bum from the neighborhood. He's talking about being in, getting in. 
then I know that I will have worth. We're all working to get back in the garden because we've all been pushed out of the garden because of our sin. We've all been pushed out of the garden. Adam and Eve moved east of Eden. Anytime you see the word east, east is an idiom in the Old Testament that represents distance from God or being expelled by God. So Adam and Eve have chosen to be, they've chosen, they've expelled God and they've been expelled by God. There's a brokenness in relationship, you see. And the sword basically means you will never get back into the garden on your own. We all have an understanding. We all have an imagination, and our imagination tells us it's a broken imagination. It's a, it's a sinful imagination. We have a view of what perfection. We have a view of what heaven. We have a view of what we want here on earth that's going to be as close to, we're going to be working to get heaven here. We're going to be working to get into the garden here. We want to have a perfect family. And so when you don't have a perfect plan, when something goes wrong, and it always goes wrong at the worst times, Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve, your birthday, it happens on those days too, right? You say, why can't we just have a normal family? That's what we say, right? I need to get this work done, but that baby just keeps crying and crying and crying. Why can't you just get there and help him? We say that, don't we? Our work, we just work and work. All I do is work. I'm just working and producing and delivering. Why can't I be noticed? Why can't I be noticed? Why am I constantly getting passed over for things? You see that? All the things that I do for you as my friend, all the things that I do for you people. Where's the love? Why can't, I, why can't you just let me in? We're trying to get into the garden because that is our view of what in is. And the text here shows us that there's a sword in front of that. You will die trying to get in. In order for you to get in, you're not going to get in because you're going to die. The sword is going to come down on you. All of life's pursuit is to cover over this inadequacy that we feel as a result of being separated from God. But because we sought to increase our options and, and potential and freedom and joy without God, now we're out. And as a result, we've chosen this. As a result, there's suffering and brokenness. How do you end it? How do you finish it? What's the end of sin? That's our third point. First, God doesn't destroy Adam and Eve. He counsels them. He talks to them. He's asking them questions. Look at the mercy of God in this text. God says, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from this tree? This is God. You don't think he knows the answer? He knows the answer. Why is he asking all these questions? It's because he wants them to own it. He's giving them an opportunity to own it. He wants them to know. He wants you to take responsibility. Own it. He's pursuing. He's teaching. He's asking. He's counseling. Notice, he doesn't ask the serpent any questions. He doesn't say, hey, serpent, why did you? He doesn't do that. He asks Adam questions. He asks Eve questions. You see that? Just the people he loves because he wants to shape us in the midst of our brokenness and our sin. So first you see, how does, how does sin come to end? One, look at the counsel of God. Look at his word. What is word showing you? What is community telling you about you? Second, Adam and Eve, they sow fig leaves to cover over themselves, but look what, what God does. 
He makes garments for them out of animal skin. Why? Because the world is hostile, because the world is dangerous. Fig leaves are insufficient. They blow away. They rot away just like that. God is so gentle. God is so pursuing. God is so providing. Look at the grace of God. I mean, he's just been betrayed in the great, to the greatest degree. He's been damaged to the greatest degree, but he's still loving. His love is so proactive. And it's not just proactive, it's a foreshadowing. Because the coats of skin, these garments of skin mean what? In order for Adam and Eve to be fully covered, to be fully protected, blood had to be spilled to make garments for them, for their covering. And so, verses 14, 15 One, we know he's counseling us constantly. Two, he's constantly providing, and he's provided a covering for us. But it's not just a a pro-action of God, a pursuing action of God. It's a foreshadowing because verse 14 and 15, we have the promise of God. The one time he speaks to the serpent, God makes a promise. He says, you will one day come to an end. That's the promise. He says, you will come to an end. He says, you will strike his heel, the son of the woman, you will strike his heel, but the son of the woman will crush your head. We call this the proto-euangelion, the prototype of the gospel, the foreshadowing of good news. What's that mean? Think about this. You're down in Texas. It only works in, I don't know, it works in Texas because I imagine there's snakes in Texas. I mean, there's snakes here too, but... Walk with me here, all right? Uh, you're, you're down in Texas, and a snake slithers into your house. And your family, ah, you know, they all jump on chairs, and they're like, whoa, look, there's snakes. Oh, it's crazy. It's scared. Uh, one man comes in, and oh, he stomps the head, crushes the head of the serpent, dead. But the snake bites him. And that venom courses through him, The man saves his family, but he dies. God is saying to the serpent that this snake is not just an animal. He represents all of evil. And God's promise is one day the son of the woman will come and crush the head of all sin, all evil, all of death forever. But he will be mortally wounded. How? Pastor Justin said last week, God told Adam to obey him regarding the tree, but Adam failed. And so in verse 24, he was driven east of Eden. He was expelled, alienation from God, suffering in the world. But even though Adam was cursed, he lived. Why? Someone has to pay the price, but Adam didn't pay. Because of this promise, a second Adam would come. A son of the woman would come. And so centuries later, God tells Jesus Christ to obey him regarding the tree, the cross. He's talking about the cross, and Jesus Christ obeys in full. And yet, even though he obeyed, I mean, Jesus Christ, he obeyed God as his son in full, and yet he was crucified outside the city. He was driven out of the city. He was expelled, and he was rejected. Why? 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus Christ became sin. And because he became sin, he became the curse. And because he was the curse, he had to be crushed. Adam sinned, he was cursed, and he lived. Jesus Christ was sinless, and yet he suffered the ultimate curse, and he died. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness means, uh, if you want to kind of understand the context of what righteousness is, it means approval, being approved, being justified, being made right. It means that Jesus Christ took the penalty for our sins, and so he was driven out of the city so that we can come in. We would receive the love of God. We would receive the approval of God. On the cross, so you see, Jesus is working, and he's laboring. But what did he get? He got the thorns. He got the crown of thorns. And he got the cross, the tree. The tree always represents the curse. Remember the garden? The garden also said there was a sword. Jesus Christ, in order to bring his people in, he had to go under the sword. He had to be pierced. And so Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our sin. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I'm experiencing the ultimate brokenness, the ultimate alienation, the ultimate separation from God, the ultimate distance, the ultimate suffering of God. The sword of God's wrath is now piercing me because of our transgressions. And so he hung on the cross and experienced shame. He went to the cross naked and experienced shame. Stripped naked to absorb. There was nothing that was going to cover him to experience the full wrath for the penalty, as a penalty for our sins. There was no covering. There was no garment. No place to hide. Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate emptiness. The ultimate disintegration. The ultimate incoherence. The Trinity was literally torn apart as Jesus Christ was separated from God his Father. He experienced the ultimate alienation and suffering of sin, and he went under the sword. He was pierced for our transgressions. Why? For you, for me, so that we can be intimate with God, so that we would be in, all by grace. Salvation is not based on our merit, but on Christ's merit. It's not based on our record, but Christ's record. Not based on anything we have done, but what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Jesus' blood was spilled for us. The book of Romans says, blessed are they whose sins are covered. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. At the entrance of the garden, God places these cherubim and a flaming sword, meaning that we can't get back in. So it's amazing to see that when the high priest would come to slay the bull, to slay the animal and spill the blood, that blood was spilt over a mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, and facing that mercy seat are these angels, these cherubim. Because what he's saying is it will take blood for us to enter in. And Christ, as a result, his blood has been spilled so we can come in. That is our assurance. Friends, that is our assurance. That is why that is our validation. That is our justification. That is the reason why we don't have to sit and pour the weight of intimacy on other people. You can be intimate genuinely 
because there's a genuine love for them, not so that you can receive love from them. You see, you will rot them and destroy them, whether they are your children, your friends, your parents, your spouse, your boss, your coworkers. It does not matter. You see that? This is the end of work. This is the end of snobbishness. This is the end of jealousy. This is the end of pride. This is the end of, of gossip. This is the end of sin. By coming before the mercy seat, knowing that Christ's blood has been spilt on the cross for our sake so that we could be in. When the gospel enters, a Christian says, it's not my resume that's the key but living actively in God's love for me, demonstrated on the cross. If not for anything else, the cross is sufficient. It's Jesus' love that kept Jesus on the cross for his people. Plunge yourself and your failures and your shame and your guilt. Plunge yourself into the sacrificial blood of Jesus, and there's an end to the alienation from God. That's how you know and feel and experience the end of shame and the end of guilt, the end to the only suffering that could ever truly ruin you. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Trust in our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. It will shape you and transform your life and reverse the curse. Let's pray.